In eastern lands they talk in flowers, and they tell in a garland their love and cares. Each blossom that blooms in their garden bowers, on its leaves a mystic language bears. The rose is a sign of joy and love, each blushing love in its earliest dawn, and the mildness that suits the gentle dove from the myrtle's snowy flower is drawn. Innocence shines in the lily's bell, pure as the heart in its native heaven. Fame's bright star and glory's swell in the glossy leaf of the bay are given. The silent, soft and humble heart in the violet's hidden sweetness breathes, and the tender soul that cannot part a twine of evergreen fondly wreathes. The cypress that daily shades the grave is sorrow that mourns her bitter lot, and faith that a thousand ills can brave speaks in thy blue leaves, forget me not. Then gather a wreath from the garden bowers and tell thy wish of thy heart in flowers. Hayley, are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> because we have props. Flower crowns. They are beautiful. And it goes in the shirt. It does. And you didn't even know what I was wearing today, so that was very appropriate. I know, I'm an absolute <laughs> genius. So if you're listening to us rather than watching us, um, I have just cracked out the flower crowns. So although it was seen as very, very chic, during the Victorian period, to have a bloom in your hair or pinned on your hat, very, very fashionable. Um, flower crowns were a bit like today, seen a bit as a bit basic, kind of a bit of a, a, an outdated pagan tradition, but um, I don't care. No, so I, I associate flower crowns, I think, mostly with May Day, which is kind of yeah. why we originally thought of today's subject, isn't it? Because today yeah. on All the Around, we're going to be talking about flowers <gasps> and we look great in them <laughs> we look so good I you you did yours a lot more professionally than i did i'm still still kind of struggling with mine i think <laughs> no you've managed to like ideally place it i think, I think we've done very very well it's gorgeous thank you very much you're welcome <laughs> very um very appropriately seasonal now so yeah today we're going to be talking about flowers and in particular kind of how the victorians thought about flowers, why flowers are important, mm -hmm. how flowers kind of featured and uh, some, some kind of superstitions and some everyday everyday uses, I believe. So yeah, as you probably already know, if you've seen our previous episodes, I'm Dr. Haley Flynn and I usually look at dreams in periodicals and this is my colleague, Emma Prober. Yes, and I usually look at the novel of manners and Jane Austen and Elizabeth Gaskell. And you, if you follow us on Twitter, you will have also seen that I did a very, very short thread on flowers in wives and daughters because that was that was a particular interest of mine. That was a particularly good thread as well. I did see that. <laughs> Thank you so much. I tried my best. Yeah. So to start off with, what what was flowers all about? What was the importance of flowers? Okay, so floriography or the language of flowers is essentially like a lexicon or a language or a dictionary of what flowers mean. And it's very, very based on the symbolic meanings. Um, so this was looking at what individual flowers meant and also what they could mean if you paired them together to make what were called talking bouquets. 
Okay. Where you could send complex messages. Ah, I see. So kind of like sending a card, but the message is encoded in the flowers. Yes. And I think many a Victorian woman who might have received a bouquet and was trying to decipher it would have much preferred if a card had come with it. Because as we'll get into, it could be quite tricky to decipher. (laughs) That could create an awkward situation. (laughs) It could. It could. It's rife. If anyone's out there and wants to start like a new rom-com series or a new sort of periodical <laughs> yeah. drama like i really think you could go to town with the the meanings of flowers or the language of flowers yeah yeah okay so i'm already intrigued so i think you've been looking at some um books on the language of flowers yes, yes. we've been well i was mostly looking into basically how did flowers how did it become codified how do you take flowers and assign them some meaning mm. so there's evidence to show that people were specifically cultivating gardens you know, back in China many, many centuries ago, um, basing that all around symbolic meaning, usually peace. Buddha comes up quite a lot, um, and he's he's usually sat um, under a tree or surrounded by flowers as well, um, and that connection to sort of nature. There's also a long history of symbolic flowers in Japan and cultivating them. But specifically, people still tune in to the Weather Channel today to check for something that's called Sakura Zensen, which basically means cherry blossom front. So I don't know if you've noticed, but the cherry blossoms were in season in the UK. They were. So I love them. (laughs) I love them. And I was actually planning on taking a picture for the podcast, but I kept putting it off because unlike apparently the entire nation of Japan, I was unaware that cherry blossoms only last for a couple of weeks yeah that's why so soon i know i know i stepped out of my door this morning thinking i'll get a nice shot for the twitter <laughs> or the instagram eh, gone completely gone um so that's an important important cultural event in the japanese calendar uh they call it hanami i believe or hanami um yeah it's hanami um which is the the flower festival so you'd go oh, and you'd, yes, you'd witness that yeah yeah, so you go and witness the cherry blossoms falling. You should have like a picnic with like family or friends. It's like a really nice springtime activity. Yeah. I guess we have May Day and we run around a maypole and they get to sit in a nice <laughs> park with some cherry blossoms. Yeah. So, I mean, it is fitting, obviously interesting, but also it makes complete sense that for various cultures, spring would be celebrations of flowers because it's the return of most of the flowers. Yes. Yes. And that's something that we've actually had um, mostly in the UK and France since the 17th century. We had something called um, bedding out, which meant that, and it was a bit of a strange practice to begin with as well, because usually you used like the soil beds all the year round for various plants. There was kind of this, this rash, this new idea of essentially it mostly lying dormant for most of the year and then only planting like beautiful flowers that would exist in sort of spring summer kind of beginning of autumn time mm-hmm. so that's kind yeah, of neat turn around our ornamental flowers i guess mm. but you know all of that kind of the the tradition of that of celebrating the return of the flowers that's obviously way way before the victorians that tradition but definitely coming into the interpretation of flowers and their meanings this is something that's kind of more more specific to the victorians yeah, so one thing that keeps coming up in many of the scholarly things that I've been reading around um, is the idea of Lady Mary Wortley Montague, 
and her explorations of the globe. So during her time in Istanbul, she came across a custom called Salam. Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, um, but it's the closest we're going to get. I will explain what that tradition is, and hopefully anyone who does know Turkish will know what I mean. Um, and so that was this idea of kind of almost wordplay. So it wasn't specifically flowers, it was objects. It wasn't trying to figure out what the symbol was. It was basically based off of memorized rhyming patterns. Yeah. So you would send someone like a box of like random items essentially, but that person would have memorized rhymes for each item. And then you could kind of like figure out via that code what that person meant. Okay, like sending them a puzzle. <laughs> yes, it sounds like a very upper class, yeah. um, very cute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, in one of her letters back home to, I think it was Alexander Pope, you know, poet and famous satirist, she was saying that in one box, you know, there was a single almond and there was some silk in there. And, you know, it was, it seems like a random assortment. I think that's what's, what's so interesting. Whereas if you get a bouquet of flowers, it's, it's pretty. So you don't almost have to think about what's going on there. But if someone gives you a random box of stuff, there's more of yeah. an onus to figure out there's, what it's saying. <laughs> there's kind of a, a double function, isn't there, in the bouquet of flowers? Because it's like it's a beautiful item to display and it's a very kind of traditional gift to give. But yeah, I think if somebody gave me a box with a single almond in, I might not be immediately <laughs> simply <laughs> confused. <laughs> simply confused. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Montague wrote of this particular custom, there is no colour, no flower, no weed, no fruit, herb, pebble or feather that has not a verse belonging to it. And you may quarrel, reproach or send letters of passion, friendship, civility or even news without ever inking your fingers. Oh, I know. Interesting. I mean, without ever inking your fingers does have that kind of tone of what a what a sort of like base thing to do to write a letter and maybe get inky fingers which of course isn't really the case because people did write letters as as yeah. a kind of um very everyday thing for for all yeah and i suppose even dried flowers in letters yeah. as well and something that way yeah <laughs> it's an interesting interesting way of putting it like the language of flowers might be this kind of yeah, I don't know. Special, more special thing, I guess. They're just oh, yeah. getting inky fingers writing a letter. I was gonna say yes, but you might get bleeding fingers from picking flowers which have thorns <laughs> on them. Or I mean, I guess if you're engaging the language of flowers, you're you know, sort of choosing them. Yeah, choosing them from somebody who's Maybe, already had to gather them. Yeah, I'd have to think what thorny one. <laughs> oh, there are some thorny ones in the language of flowers. Like a, a lot of the blossoms either have without thorns or with thorns and they mean oh, two very distinct okay. things right that's interesting so you have to remove some parts of the flowers as well from this. i would imagine this is going to get very complicated it does <laughs> it does and everyone has different ideas but the very very first one that we can really base it back to because you know we've, we've montague was kind of talking about objects and we're kind of mm. talking about the language of flowers so in terms of it being codified the first, well, the most well-known version of it being codified was a book by Madame Charlotte de Latour, um, and it used the title The Language of Flowers, and in it she listed flowers by season, by the meaning of them in singles, and by their bouquets. 
So she was the first passenger, and that was published in 1819. And after that, it really seemed to just develop. It really became in vogue. Yeah, so this actually really is like a Victorian thing then, kind of just starting a bit early in the 19th century and then like blossoming into something that's really, really important. I think there's an interesting crossover here, I think, between dream guides for mm. Victorians and the flower the flower books. Yeah, yeah. We, we will get there because there's lots of different books. Oh. There's... It would be far more convenient if you just had a single book yes. for dreams and for flowers. <laughs> and that was your dictionary. That was it. That was all the meanings. Mm. But in the same way that you have dream guides that are kind of ephemera that are constantly published and they're mostly published for entertainment purpose mm. and everyone has sort of slightly different variations, the same thing kind of happens with the language of flowers. Everyone has a different take. And it develops as well. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why that happens, and this will be a really interesting comparison, because flowers are just based on symbolism, sentimental symbolism in particular. Mm. So, you know, you have flowers like bluebells and violets, which have, have kind of tilting heads. So they're often described as being bashful or it's usually sort of like early death whereas flowers that are you know very open and voluptuous like orange blossoms which if you've ever seen them sort of grow on the branch it, it, it just, it's like bursts yeah and they're usually like linked to fertility and things like that so you kind of have these sentimental interpretations not really the botanical interpretations which is scientific or the horticultural interpretations which is practical. And I know that dream has a lot of science involved, but I don't know how much science really bleeds into the actual dream guides. Yeah, interestingly, in, in the interpretations, not much. I mean, a lot of the dream guides from the Victorians, they kind of started out mm. with the author sort of being like, this is, I'm a very scientific person, of course, all of this is nonsense, but here you go anyway, and, and kind of displaying it like that. Um, I mean, obviously, they knew exactly what they were doing there, but it's kind of keeping that balance between um, presenting something that's like, it's kind of scientific, it's kind of supernatural, it's also very tied into people's idea of religion, and that makes it a bit awkward sometimes, depending on the editor or the publisher and things like that. Um, but yeah, that is an interesting comparison already, because I was going to ask you actually about, with botany and the Victorians, obviously this is also becoming something that's like quite quite popular to to research, like the science of botany, and people can now do this kind of themselves, and and so it does have that scientific element at the same time that it's having this not necessarily, well, not supernatural in the same way that dream can be, but in a similar way, sort of just not not scientific, something that's more symbolic and more... Open to interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and not just in a scientific way, but open to interpretation. Okay. So this leads us on to... Um, there was another book that was published by, again, excuse the butchering of French, Sirius de Messalis. He published The New Language of Flowers mm -hmm. in 1898. Um, so it's nearly 100 years later. Yeah. Um, so part of that was to do with botany hunters. 
at the time. So that was sort of running out, trying to find new flowers, um, new herbs, new things like that um, from all across the world. Um, people were funded to do it sort of a new frontier in many ways yeah. um, of science but what I found particularly distressing about his book was he has 21 different meanings depending on the colour of a rose oh wow so you'd really <laughs> have to get your microscope out to try and figure out what colour your rose was yes yeah, so maybe we're at this point kind of slightly more merging into botany and the language of flowers in a way that's maybe not that helpful for either of those <laughs> subjects yeah yeah, and the other thing that you have to include in this as well is the the person that you're taking it from. So not only do you have these different books within the same language, so, you know, most of these books are actually from France, and obviously that many of the things that were happening in France were sort of in vogue in England, at least for a short amount of time. Mm. But then you have the comparison between East and West, because many of the flowers that we see today, so like chrysanthemums and peonies, were actually cultivated for centuries in Asia before they even came over to the West, um, which leads to wildly different interpretations of flowers. So I put down a little table here. So, for example, cherry in Eastern cultures often symbolizes joyful life, whereas in the West it symbolizes good education. A narcissus in Eastern cultures refers to good fortune, whereas we often connect up with the Greek myth of someone who is so self-obsessed, it they're egotistical. Yeah. So it's, it's linked to egotism. Uh, the lotus in Eastern cultures symbolizes purity. In Western, it's eloquence. Uh, you have the willow, which in Eastern cultures can mean good luck, whereas in the West, it means melancholy. Mm. So a daylily in Chinese culture can often refer to fertility, whereas it was often referenced in Victorian language of flowers as being flirtatious or being a coquette. Oh, okay. So it's it's interesting, and I guess we, we can't know this necessarily unless we could see the, the correspondence of the people who were actually writing these books where they made those decisions. This is something that I often wonder with the people who wrote the Dream Interpretation Guide. I think mm. a lot of the time they were kind of copying each other, but sometimes you'll you'll see one and you think, where, where did that come from? And I wonder whether with some of them it's going to be maybe folkloric or sort of superstitions. I also think because you kind of have like this massive game of like international telephone, which is based on everyone's feelings mm. about flowers. So in one of the books that I read, it also suggested that we could see it as a bit like trying to interpret emojis. So getting a bouquet is much like trying to interpret <laughs> someone who sends you a bunch of emojis. So there are some symbols like a smiley face or a heart which are universal, and you think you understand what that person means. It's pretty straightforward. But there are some ones that you might get that might cause a misunderstanding. Mm. So some people literally use the winky face, whereas I might be a little bit shocked to get a random <laughs> winky face. Um, and also, there's a lot of emojis which could be just straight up misinterpreted. And by that, I mean, um, it's a bit like, say, for example, if you try to find fish in your emoji list one of the emojis you can get is like a blue fish and a red fish that looks to be on a pole and a flag yeah um 
that actually is the symbol for boys day in japan but if you didn't know that you might end up using that emoji because you think it's just like a stylistic picture of fish yeah and i think the same thing happens in the in the language of flowers in that time period yeah it's just so much opportunity for for misinterpretation here this is a very risky message to send unless you know that other person very well and maybe know what guide they're using yeah to plan yeah. i guess you would you would kind of have to have the same in, in order for this to work in a practical setting you would kind of have to use the same code book more or less i mean my brain just immediately went to what if you're on some diplomatic mission you had to give someone a bouquet of flowers you know between sort of these international places you'd really <laughs> have to brought. <laughs> it would and you'd really have to be talking to like the ambassador of the country being like, what does this mean yeah um but having said that in a lot of the texts that i was looking at the ones that were specifically academic they said that aside from like flowers just having meanings or bouquets just having meanings in literature it seems to there doesn't seem to be any or very many at least diary accounts or memoirs or any kind of reference to someone actually using the language of flowers in real life and again even in literature flowers kind of crop up but even then there's no one really using the language of flowers yeah i mean this is the interesting point isn't it and one of the things that i think again just comparing it to dream guides you don't very often see people or hear of people interpreting their dreams as you would with a dream guide but at the same time i wonder whether this might be slightly the case with the language of flowers people didn't necessarily see them as a very um they weren't very intellectual and they weren't very kind of generally accepted which is why a lot of them start with those introductions that are like you know this is very scientific of course and it's nonsense but here it is as this kind of display of like an antiquated um form of understanding dreams i wonder whether the language of flowers also had that kind of you know maybe this is a bit frivolous and you know you wouldn't you wouldn't tell everybody that you were buying that or that you were doing that so historians seem to think that they were specifically pitched to young girls to sort of while away an afternoon mm. and a lot of them don't really have um introductions per se but if you see a lot of the artwork it's very, very floral and gentle and sort of classical feminine, almost. Um, so one of the books that I pulled from most heavily was one that was, again, very helpfully, once again, just called The Language of Flowers. But its frontispiece was um, a young girl surrounded by daisies, and she's clearly doing that traditional thing that we do in England of picking off the petals, saying, yeah. he loves me, he loves me not. Um, so I think it did have like a very specific market. But again, no one's really using them in that capacity. But what they do seem to be doing is using them the way that we do. So using them for larger romantic gestures like a proposal or Valentine's Day mm. or a wedding. And on the flip side, using them um, for going aways or leavings and funerals. So there does seem to be quite a strong historical sense there yeah okay so you would maybe um make up a bouquet for a special occasion with flowers that had lots of kind of emotional meaning to make it more meaningful i think so that's that's kind of what we've been 
looking at a little bit in the same in the same way that we use red roses at Valentine's Day because that yeah. just innate we we haven't really gone and done the history but we just know that innately symbolizes love or romantic attachment in the same way that lilies are usually used around funerals because mm. it, it's a symbol for purity it's those kinds of aspects of them I mean there's a few instances of um things cropping up in literature which have like interesting specific meanings so in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream uh pansies are put on the eyes and then once the the person who awakes that person they fall in love with them uh there's also the myth of you know the flower forget me not which does what it says on the tin, you're not meant to forget the person who gives it to (laughs) you. But what I also found out through looking at the language of flowers, looking at many different books, apparently if you blow on the flower, you're meant to know, like if you're distant from your lover, you're meant to know your lover's thoughts. Oh, I didn't know that one. I've never heard of that one. I haven't until I started digging into it. So there was also kind of like instructional uses and this kind of magical sense so flowers were still quite a large part of daily life you know as we said at the beginning of the podcast it was seen as quite in vogue to have a flower in your hair or pinned to a hat um even in winter ladies would wear flowers in their buttonholes yeah fashionable men essentially from what seems to be mid-century onwards would also have worn flowers in their buttonhole, so it wasn't just a feminine thing either. It just seems to have been a fashionable thing. Yeah. And I think, actually, you, you've made me think of two different points there, because one, it's even though, as I was saying earlier, you the flower um, language of flower books don't necessarily have that kind of supernatural element that the dream guides do, but of course flowers themselves do. They have lots of kind of supernatural connections through through folklore through their association with fairies like um like bluebells being like the the fairies can hear the bells of bluebells and it calls them to the woods and like foxgloves and and the kind of all of those connections so they do have that although maybe not so much in the language of flower books I think that, okay, so there, there's a couple of interesting ones. So I also made a very, very quick note of ones that I found particularly interesting. So there's also, you also have like flowers that are connected to herbs, which could have uses. So for example, in this 1850 book, we had valerian and its meaning was an accommodating disposition. Now valerian is often used as a sleep aid which is very accommodating. Yeah, if you're nice and relaxed and sleepy, then... Exactly. Um, we have other ones. I, I enjoyed this image. We have mistletoe, which means I surmount difficulties. And as we've seen before in that Christmas lecture that we did... Um, it can create some, some awkward situations. It can create, <laughs> yeah, around Christmas time, it definitely can. And sometimes you do have to surmount a difficulty. Um, yeah, so yeah, I quite like that. And also, coming back to what you were just saying about how people would wear them in kind of like buttonholes on their dresses, I guess another element of this language of flowers is the seasonality of flowers, because of course you can't get all flowers all the year through. And I feel like there is there's a, a literary reference just like on the tip of my tongue here, because I know this happens in a Victorian text, but I... I say this with some confidence, not being able to quite remember where <laughs> where I saw it. But 
being able to wear a flower that is not in season would be a, a sign that you had that from like a hothouse yeah. and therefore you must be quite wealthy yeah. in order to do that. A bit like having a pineapple in the 18th century. I think I've told you this before. But they used to rent out pineapples. Yes, in we have had parties. this conversation. It's, yeah. still, it's still amazing to me. Rent a pineapple. Also, speaking, <laughs> just connecting up our pineapple flower with our pineapple itself. Pineapple flower, you are perfect. Oh, that's very nice, son. I like that one too. Yeah. Maybe you can rent a pineapple flower. <laughs> pineapple. Oh. Yeah, I mean, having said that, I do think it is just the pineapple sort of sprouting its leaves. I was just thinking, what what exactly? Is I, I think it is. I think it is just that. But also, I see why it would be you are perfect. I think it takes like two years from scratch to grow a pineapple properly. Oh wow! Particularly if you're like having to use a hot house in like the 18th or 19th century. Yeah, it's a very very special condition. Object, yeah, and therefore, yeah, yeah, interesting. I think so. But I mean, <laughs> although, I mean, it's seen as, as many scholars have pointed out, and I completely relate as a scholar of the 19th century um, novel of manners, um, it's often not really seen as very serious because, you know, it's not botany, it's not horticulture, it's just girls having feelings yeah. about flowers and is therefore not serious. Um, but flowers were just such a constant part of daily life. So people had them, you know, as we were saying, men wore them, women wore them. Women had them pinned everywhere as well, like hat, hair, shoulder, uh, bodice. Um, you could also have them around the waist as well with a coat. Um, they were also l like kind of pinned in where like the overlays of some of your skirts would go. So, you know, they were everywhere. Um, and Queen Victoria was big big into her language of flowers books um you know orange blossoms were already quite popular in france but she's she uses them as part of her her wedding so she threads them into her hair Ooh. because they mean they essentially symbolize loyalty chastity marriage and as i was saying before with the branch bursting outward fertility as well yeah and i would imagine after that it probably became a lot more popular to use them for weddings. It was incredibly common. Um, many people did use them. I believe um, there were at least a, at least one royal marriage used them afterwards in in the years that followed. Um, and it, it wasn't it wasn't just Queen Victoria. Uh, Prince Prince Albert's grandmother gave her some myrtle to put in her bouquet. Mm. Um, so again, going back to some of the almost magical properties of plants. So periwinkle was meant to engender love and you would pair that with myrtle because myrtle would keep love alive. Oh. So myrtle was put in there. And Queen Victoria was obviously moved by it because she took a cutting of the myrtle, um, grew it, and it became a bush. And ever since then, that bush has been, you know, allowed to go through its cycles, but it's been put into every single royal bouquet since Queen Victoria. Yeah, that's uh... That's pretty, pretty impressive <laughs> long history. Yeah, yeah. And um, as I was saying, I don't think it's just, uh, I don't think it's something to be dismissed. I mean, Marianne Evans, who we now know today as George Eliot, she and a few of her friends consulted one of these Language of Flowers books. Oh. Yes, so that they could come up with code names, so they could sign themselves off as flowers. Oh, and that's their little brilliant. Letters. Yes. And so... Do you know they were? <laughs> 
I know what Marianne's was. Her one was clematis, which means mental beauty. Ah, very George that. Eliot. Yes. That's brilliant. That's that's a very good use. <laughs> I think so. Of flower books. Yeah. And I think they are so important. The same way with the with dream guides, you know, maybe, yeah, people saw them generally as this kind of, you know, frivolous, unimportant thing. Maybe it's a bit silly, but that doesn't mean that it's not important for its time, especially when we can see that they were so popular and that despite that kind of, oh, maybe people might look down on me for reading this, they were still being published a lot, which suggests that people were buying them and, you know, people were using them. And how much might that creep into various things and affect how people think about that subject? Exactly. And girls and women, I mean, I've used two famous examples, Queen Victoria and George Eliot, two of the titans um, of the Victorian period, that, you know, they were getting something from the Land of Flowers. Why not en masse? Yeah. Absolutely. Although, as we were saying earlier, definitely also potential for um, big misunderstandings. Terror, terror. <laughs> Particularly someone like Queen Victoria who knew the language of flowers so well, or at least her own idea of what the language mm-hmm. of flowers was, I would immediately need to know which one it was, <laughs> because the idea of accidentally giving her the wrong thing would be too upsetting. <laughs> accidentally insult the Queen. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Hmm. <laughs> So, as you were were reading these, obviously, as we've said, there are a lot of different languages of flowers and therefore lots of different interpretations of the same flowers. Did you have any favourite ones? Are there any particularly interesting interpretations? I had a few pages. I had to cut myself down because I was like, this is, this is too much. I need to show some self-control. <laughs> but some of my favourites. So... Here we have what you were talking about earlier. So if you have apple blossom, that can mean pretense and fame speaks him good and great. But (laughs) with thorns, deceitful charms. Oh dear. Okay. Don't forget to remove your thorns. Yes. Very, very important. Here was a specifically confusing one. So almond common, indiscretion, almond flowering, hope, but an almond laurel perfidy. Oh, okay. Is... Dramatic. Dramatic changes for almond. It's incredibly stressful. Um, <laughs> a few of my um, other favourites were, if you give someone a branch of currants, it means you please all. Hmm. And I would be thrilled if someone gave me a branch of currants. I'd love that. <laughs> but later on in the book, and I do mean pages and pages later, it said that a single current, let's have a little look. A single current meant my frown will kill me. Oh. <laughs> so, sure. like, if you had only read the, the first part of the book and perhaps just thought that currents generally meant good things, you, you would be potentially insulting someone very, very badly there. Yes. Yes, <laughs> very much so. I mean, there's certain things in here that. Anything in the mint family seems good. So mint means virtue. Peppermint means warmth of feeling. Um, Strawberry tree is quite sad. It says esteem, not love. Oh. Uh, We have the Japanese rose, which means beauty is your only attraction. Oh, wow. That's quite the backhanded compliment, really, isn't it? (laughs) Queen's rocket, you are the queen of coquettes. Oh. 
Rhubarb is advice. Hmm, that's interesting. Potato is benevolence. Which is quite nice, and yet at the same time, I'm not sure you'd be particularly impressed if somebody gave you a potato as a gift. They'd have to give me a bushel. Um, <laughs> what else have you got here? Also difficult to incorporate into a bouquet, really. It is. It really is. Um, so we've got pear also means affection. So that's something that I think you could run with. And yeah. A, um, again, how you have, like, fruit salads and sometimes you add, like, currants sometimes to a yeah. salad. You could maybe add so a pear have to a bouquet. An individual currant. <laughs> exactly. You've got to be more than one. Wild licorice is I declare against you. Oh, okay. Very dramatic. Do what you... did licorice ever do? I know, I know. I, I mean, maybe this person just didn't like the taste. Maybe they just took it one step further. <laughs> um, yes, cress means stability and power. Okay. Again, all very, very yeah. strong but confusing meanings. <laughs> and again, difficult to work out why on earth that would be. What association did this person have between cress? And, and they loved it. They loved it. <laughs> oh, I do. I do enjoy this one. This this feels very um, modern day for anybody who's into tea. Chamomile means energy in adversity. Oh, that is a nice one. I like that one too. Yeah. I feel like having a chamomile tea gives you energy in adversity. Yeah. Okay. Just to end on this one, just because I love it so much. Belladonna has. Silence. Hush! <laughs> Just give someone Belladonna to die. Them to shut up. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Or, or die. Or die. I do yeah, I do wonder whether some of the more poisonous ones, that's kind of maybe where they, they get their meaning. Okay, so interestingly enough, some of the... So I read some texts that were from the Victorian period and then I read some modern texts that discussed Victorian books and then I read some modern languages of flowers which mostly came off of either like early modern or Victorian interpretations and also some modern ones but I did have an exclaimer at the beginning that said basically just because it was telling you what all the flowers and herbs and things were didn't mean that you should go out and touch them or consume them or put them on your skin because some of them are just highly poisonous. poisonous. Oh, wow. Okay, that's also a, a bit of a risk factor. I feel like maybe in the Victorian period, maybe someone should have put a little disclaimer. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But we live and we learn. Yes. And were there many modern language of flower books? It's been, it's going back. Really? Yeah. As far as I could see. I mean, there were... Uh, a number of books don't worry all the books that I referred to will be put in the description mm-hmm. so you'll be able to have a little bit of a poke around um yeah like every few years there seems to have been like a complete language of flowers being redone they kind of take them in very like slightly different directions there's one that um literally is just a dictionary there's one that's a myth there's one that's a definitive history they're all yeah. Yeah, overlapping and coming from different directions. So again, another interesting um, combination with another interesting uh, link between the flower guides and the dream guides, because of course we, we still get dream guides as well. And there are some similarities with those, and, and yet they've kind of developed as understandings have developed, and they don't need to put a, a health warning on the dream ones. But uh, I guess that's, that's particular to flowers. 
I feel like you'd have to put more of a um like social warnings in the dream ones like don't get a divorce just because you have this dream like I know I said that it's bad <laughs> in this dream but we're, we're not countenancing legal action yeah yeah but we'll be coming back to dreams in in future episodes and we will in our next episode we're going to be starting to think about summer and in particular summer holidays so that will be that will be a surprise for Ben. but yeah thank you for thank you for my flow <laughs> oh you're welcome so glad you enjoyed it you look great by the way oh, thank you that was a lot of fun for may and uh hopefully everybody finds it also fun for uh for the season yes season of flowers essentially May. cherry blossoms might be gone but we've still got lots and lots of flowers to look forward to bluebells are still out means the violets will be out soon daffodils might have been gone but we should have hollyhock and roses out soon and i know that because a language of flowers book told me <laughs> brilliant lots of lots of things learned today so yeah, thank you so much for flowers. joining us yeah thank you and we'll see you next time for summer holidays bye for now bye